Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. My name is Shobana Xavier, and I'm your co-host. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I hope you are safe and well wherever you are. So in today's episode, we are joined by Ken Chidwood, who is currently the Fritz Thyssen Foundation Postdoctoral Research Fellow with the Berlin Graduate School, Muslim Cultures and Societies at Freie Universität Berlin. And um, he is discussing his book, The Muslims of Latin America and the Caribbean, which is published in 2021 by Lynn Reiner's Publishers. Chidwood's book is a provocation for the need to include Latin America and Caribbean Muslim histories and contemporary expressions of piety in our studies of Islam and Muslim societies, particularly for scholars um, and scholarship that's committed to thinking about and thinking with and through global Islam. The book synthesizes histories and scholarship of Latin America and Caribbean Muslim narratives, but also draws on ethnographic study conducted across the hemisphere to provide complex textures to how Muslims' identities are constructed from diverse regions of, let's say, the Carib- um, of Brazil, Puerto Rico, Argentina, Trinidad and Tobago, Cuba, and much, much more. The first half of the book maps historical lineages and conjectures of potential um, and real Muslim histories and claims that inform Muslim imaginations, such as of a potential pre-Columbian contact, some of which is complicated as we discuss, and connections with Spain, as well as enduring legacies of enslaved African Muslims uh, who were forced to cross the Black Atlantic and indentured servants, such as from India and Indonesia and Arab migrants. So lots of diversities, diverse histories and layers here. The second half shifts to contemporary Muslim communities and their various global entanglements, uh, some at the intersection of Islamic orthodoxy, economics, capitalism, transnational flows and material cultures, um, and politics, and much, much more. So some examples of these include uh, wonderful case studies that such as the halal economy in Brazil, or Sufi missionary activities in Mexico, or the contestation for Sunni hegemony over mosque in Havana, Cuba. The chapters in the latter half of the book are very insightful, provocative, and nuanced. They're wonderful case studies that would be of interest to various academic and non-academic readers, you know, folks with general interest for of this geographical region, but also great teaching tool in the classroom. With its rich historical contextualization to its coverage of numerous contemporary issues that thematically address issues uh, of Islamophobia, Orientalism, piety, spatial fluidity, 
flows, geographies, you know, notions of transnationalism and diaspora and broadly global Islam and much, much more. You know, this book is uh, definitely a must read for scholars who work on Islam at various intersections. In our conversation today, Ken and I spoke about his intellectual story and what led to the writing of this book, um, some methodological practices that informed his scholarship, his broader interventions in globalizing our studies of global Islam, and, you know, some ways in which you could use this book to teach in your classrooms. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Ken Chitwit about his book, The Muslims of Latin America and the Caribbean. Hi, Ken. Thank you so much for joining us on the New Books in Islamic Studies podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing swell. Thank you so very much for having me on. I know it's cliche to say, but this is a real humble honor to be on the New Books Network and to be able to talk about this relatively new book. Yeah, no, I'm excited. Um, and I'm, I mean, so there's like, I had two experiences reading the book. One of it was like, oh, wow, I didn't know that happened. And the other part of it was me taking notes to be like, oh, I need to like refer to this or follow up on that. Um, and it was just such a wonderful and accessibly written book, um, The Muslims of Latin America and the Caribbean. So I'm just excited to really pick your brain more about it, the process and all that. Um, you may know we have a tradition on our channel to ask a little bit about your intellectual journey. Um, so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about who you are and what led you on this path and what really led you to write this fantastic uh, book. Yeah, of course. Uh, I kind of always talk about three hats that I wear or kind of three professions that I dabble in. Um, I, I still haven't decided what I'm going to be when I grow up. Uh, so <laughs> I, I work as a, a scholar of religion and I'm just, you know, gobsmacked that I get to do that professionally, working with uh, research centers and, and different groups uh, in the academic study of religion, but I'm also a religion news writer. Yeah. Uh, but I started studying theology and education within a conservative evangelical Christian tradition. And so my intellectual journey starts there. And I don't write too much about that in this book. It's in the next monograph where I talk much more about uh, ethnography and, and that work that I do. So I do a little bit more reflection on that journey. But it, it started there growing up in Los Angeles within a conservative evangelical Christian household and not feeling very well equipped to be able to understand and navigate the diversity and difference that I was experiencing in my everyday life as a high school student in the Los Angeles area. Yeah. And uh, so I started to ask a lot of questions. And as I continued to ask those questions, um, I found works of anthropology, works in religious studies being much more helpful uh, than works of theology that I was encountering in my initial studies. And so when I went to go do my master's, um, I was already writing on religion for newspapers and magazines. Uh, and as part of that, I met Isa Parrada, who was the first uh, Latinx Muslim that I got to know. And when I encountered him, I did a profile on him for the Houston Chronicle. It was a popular profile, about 1,200 words. Uh, but that encounter, I didn't quite know it at the time, but would change the entire trajectory of my life. Uh, and 10 years later, I'm still hanging out with uh, Latinx Muslims or Muslims in Latin America and the Caribbean. And Isa was the, the first step in that process. And, and more and more, I just found, again, that the questions and the methods of uh, ethnographic research in particular, but religious studies theoretically uh, were really helpful for, for helping me understand diversity and difference. And Latinx Muslims and Muslims in the Americas from this minoritization perspective. 
this book in particular uh, emerged then out of the research I was doing in Latinx Muslims on the tail end of that. I came to see how important Puerto Rican Muslims were to the broader Latinx Muslim community. They're around 20 to 25% of that community in the United States. Um, as one of my interlocutors put it, they are the original gangsters of the Latinx Muslim community, literally coming out of like gang and street life in New York right. and New Jersey areas and other urban centers uh, and, and starting some of the first Latinx Muslim organizations and, and weaving that into uh, you know, Puerto Rican identification and nationalism and, you know, broader right struggles in these urban centers in the 70s and 80s. Um, and as I did that kind of focus on Puerto Rican Muslims, I started going, well, what, what about the rest of the Americas? Right. What about Cuba? And what about Mexico? And what about these other spots? Um, and so I got the opportunity to teach an Islam in the Americas course at the University of Florida with the religion department and also the Center for Latin American Studies. And when I taught that course, we had like 20 something students in that course, which was just fantastic to have 20 something undergrads taking that class. And I had them read all types of fantastic work on this subject, but it was all highly specialized academic articles or book chapters. And while the students were fantastic and could hang with it, the thing they said at the end was, uh, it'd be great, Ken, if we had like an introductory text to just kind of help us get some type of overview and account of this and then dive deeper into these particular cases and studies and historical nitty-gritty aspects from these articles and chapters that you had us read and so i said well somebody should write that uh and and that's what this book hopefully became yeah and i could i could see the different parts of you as you're talking in the book i mean this is so accessibly written as someone who's not a specialist i was able to just pick up and just really like get into it so i mean kudos to you for like having that piece down but also really kind of captures how like you're a wonderful writer um you know you kind of have the mix of um describing certain scenes you know be it in the chiapas or in cuba like in havana and you're just kind of really um i think like your your capacity capacity to evoke the imagery was really beautiful as well. So there's that. And you're also really condensing um, complicated kind of ideas and theories. Um, and then you do write in your introduction, your acknowledgement, part of it, this is really directed towards your student. And so that's really like a wonderful testament to what you wanted the book to be as well. Um, so as you're talking, I could be like, oh, that's where, you know, part of this is coming in from the book. And it's kind of beautiful to hear that. So congratulations to you. Um, Another thing that I really love to talk to our guests about is just methods. I'm just kind of like obsessed with methods, partly because I come from an ethnographic background. Um, I sensed in the book that you were doing a lot of that as well, but it was kind of just doing and not as much talking about it. And so um, so I wonder, like, you know, what were some of the methodological aspects of putting this book together? Um, I imagine there was a lot of challenges. <laughs> so if there were things that you'd want, you're reflecting on now um, or you want to share with us, that would be also awesome but yeah um you you did ethnography for this right i'm sensing that that this is something that you were doing along the way to write the book for sure yeah, yeah. and uh, we could nerd out on this for a while um, <laughs> yeah it, it's not an explicit work of ethnography so as a more synthetic account of both the, the history of and contemporary presence of muslims in latin america and the caribbean um, I knew I wasn't going to be able to do ethnography every, everywhere and yeah. all at once, you know, and, and, you know, do that sufficiently. And so what this book does in terms of methodology is it, it draws from a broad range of literature, yeah. um, 
a lot of secondary academic literature, you know, people who are experts on topics that I, I knew I wasn't going to be able to access. And as I, I write in the introduction and also in the acknowledgments is I, I try to build on their work and put them into conversation with each other uh, and, and around topics that perhaps haven't been done explicitly before because there's not an infrastructure or there wasn't an infrastructure for engagement between these scholars uh, who are writing on similar themes and topics. And so I really try to synthesize a lot of that literature on this topic. So in, in one sense, the book is a, in some parts an extended literature review uh, and, and just kind of putting those topics in the conversation. And then I support that kind of synthesizing of the literature uh, with some original research. So some you know primary literature that I interact with um, and really engage with. So um, Abdul Hakim Quick's works that I, I kind of try to engage with in the first chapter on the question of pre-Columbian discovery or encounter in the Americas, uh, or something like The Way of the Shadow Wolves, which is a book written by Tom Morrissey, a uh, Republican politician and former U.S. Marshal in Arizona, and the action star Steven Seagal, who co-wrote that book, uh, which is about uh, Mexican drug cartels and jihadist terrorists in their um, imagined kind of landscape working together with the deep state in the, uh, in, in the American government, U.S. government, uh, to, to get terrorists across the border and undermine the United States. Um, you know, so that's a primary piece of literature that I, I, I dive into a little bit. But then, yeah, there were also then these other elements of ethnographic research that I did in Cuba and in Puerto Rico and in Mexico and in Brazil and among Latinx Muslims in the United States that I, that I bring in. And those shaped particular chapters uh, specifically, you know, the one on Cuba, obviously very much shaped by that. And there's an extended ethnographic account there or a section called uh, Everybody Knows Salim uh, mm -hmm. when I'm talking about um, Arab migrants to uh, the Americas as a whole. Uh, and that was really important for me to put in there because this is called the Muslims of Latin America and the Caribbean, not Islam in or of Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, a, there's other books that are written with, with that title, and, and that's great, and, and they're fantastic. I'm thinking about Aisha Khan's um, edited collection with the University of Press of Florida. Fantastic book that I use for that class. I still reference it almost every day uh, in my own work. Uh, but here, I really wanted to focus on the Muslims in particular. So I found ethnography being the way to do this and mm -hmm. to tell stories of particular Muslims uh, that, that are essential to this story. And it is their story, right? right. Um, and and so I really wanted that to come to the fore at times. And that's even also the case with the opening ethnographic account that I start the book with from Luis Aldea, uh, where there are Muslims present at this festival in multiple ways. There are Muslims who are present there with me that attended the festival with me, but then also there are Muslims being represented as particular characters in this festival. Uh, that I, I opened the book with that are long gone and were imagined in many ways and are forgotten in some ways um, and talking about that very process. And multiple people said that those have been their, their favorite sections of the book, these, mm. these ethnographic accounts. And that warms my heart because I am an ethnographer, mm. you know, first and foremost. And so, you know, I'm, I'm really thankful that those, those, those sections have spoken to people um, and that they are perhaps some of the stronger aspects of the text, mm -hmm. um, because that's where I pour in a lot of my effort um, and yeah. a lot of my blood, sweat, and tears, and a lot of sweat when I was at that festival in Louisiana. It was a 
mid-July festival in Puerto Rico. So it was yeah. a lot of sweat, uh, yeah. FYI. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, I mean, I agree with folks who are commending you for the ethnographic pieces. I mean, um, Coffee with Salem was probably one of my favorites. And I still have like the image of the appliance store and the you unloading uh, appliances from the truck. Like, you know, I've just, it's in my head, right? And so, and the same with you going to the mosque in Havana in the midst of the, the festival and the, the heat and all of that. Not the festival, but I guess folks were performing outside and then, you know, you going in and the heat. And so, yeah, those images, I think the way that you've written it and the way that you've described it because you were there uh, have ended up sticking with me Um a mist of other things, right? But yeah, that's, I think, one of the things that ethnographers can do so well is to really get us to the place, right, through books. And so I definitely enjoyed that aspect of the, of the book as well. Um, can you help our readers, um, maybe if they don't know what um, Latin America and Caribbean is, like what kind of, you talk a lot about in the book as hemispheres, but well, like what are the geographical spaces or regions that this book is really, I mean, I don't want to say bound by because that's what you're trying to transcend, but like if we were to start somewhere, um, how would you help us kind of start in a particular geographical space and in, in terms of the stories you're telling? Yeah, I mean, th this this book, as you rightly identify, um, is definitely situated within a literature that questions areas, studies, rubrics, right? And, and wants to deconstruct those in part. Uh, and so, yeah, it does play with our conceptualizations of what counts as Latin America, the Caribbean, the Americas as a whole. And, and I'm not new in that, right? I'm, I'm stepping into a long line of, of scholars who have been doing that work. And this is a way to further deconstruct these categories, these areas, these regimes that we've, we've, we've built uh, through, you know, colonial archives and, and histories and, you know, contemporary academic departments that are the legacy of those. But uh, as I, I write in the book, and as my uh, PhD supervisor, Terje Estebo, often said to me, uh, there is a there there. Uh, so there is a there there. And so I want to identify that. And I want to lock that in. And so it does focus on um, Latin America and the Caribbean in general. Mm -hmm. um, and that would include everything. I'm going to say this, and it's immediately wrong. Everything south of the the, the U.S. Mexico border, right. um, and in in the Caribbean Sea, yeah. um, and 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 down, but at the same time, it keeps because it has to broader geographies in in the purview, and and there's a whole section that focuses on Latinx Muslims in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and that's explicitly part of this book because I see it as part of this broader American hemisphere, mm -hmm. but then there's also some references to um, you know, Canada and, uh, you know, that, that very brief, I don't go into it very much, but, you know, keeping as part of this kind of longer, uh, hemispheric vertical dimension, then there's also these, those horizontal dimensions, uh, that after the book, I'm even more interested in, right. um, which are these different connections between Muslim communities in Latin America and the Caribbean to other parts of the global Islamic landscape. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and that's one of the central arguments of the book is that, you know, Latin America and Caribbean should be seen as representative sites or different places within Latin America and the Caribbean should be seen as representative, representative sites of global Islam. And I'm using the language of Aliyah Khan here. Um, and they should be seen at the same time as interconnected with these other places, whether that be West Africa or, you know, different ports and places in Europe or that be South Asia or elsewhere uh, in the Middle East, North Africa, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a map that I produced 
after this book um, as part of a, a related research project that just mapped all the different Islamic centers, mosques, outreach places, et cetera, of, of Muslims in Latin America and the Caribbean as a way to visualize the, the presence and, and the, the spread of Muslims in the region. Uh, and then I, I did another aspect of this project where I just made connecting lines between these mosques, Islamic centers, organizations, institutions, et cetera, and the, the people who financed them, the people who built them, the people who populate them, the people who run them, um, the, you know, different landscapes or, or, you know, ideascapes, mediascapes, technoscapes to use Arjuna Patarai's scapes of globalization um, that connect them to other parts of the world. And the map got very messy really quick because there's connections all over the globe. Right. Uh, and so this book starts to move us in that direction. I don't think it moved us far enough. Mm -hmm. so that's why I'm kind of continuing in that direction now. Um, but yeah, so I don't know if I've really helpfully answered your question, but uh, yeah, Latin America and the Caribbean. So it includes a, a lot of different nation states and histories and cultures and people groups that we would often associate with Latin America and the Caribbean. So it, it hones in on Cuba. Uh, it hones in on Mexico. It looks deeply at Brazil. It takes a look at Argentina. It um, you know, takes in the Anglophone Caribbean as well, Trinidad and Jamaica. And it looks at Suriname at some point in time as well. Um, and so, yeah, it does take in a lot of different geographies across what would be traditionally known as Latin America and Caribbean, but always keeping these other places uh, and, and people in the purview because they're they're interconnected. And that, that's part of the central argument of the book. Yeah, and I think it's one of the things that I really appreciate it as someone who thinks really about diasporic religions and transnationalism and dynamics of global and local. Um, I think the book, like as a key thread through that, um, weaves it through each of the chapters really wonderfully. Um, and you're, you know, playing with a lot of interesting like terminologies of tensions of the diaspora or, um, you know, one of my favorite ones, and it's in the conclusion, so we'll get to it later, but the idea of globalizing global Islam, like what does that mean, right? And so um, you're really kind of pushing the readers to think through this. And one of the ways you do that is that the first half of the book is a historical section where you're kind of setting up um, a certain kind of the layers or the textures of where this kind of contemporary moment that you're um, guiding the readers through kind of really exist. Um, and the first two chapter, the chapter two and chapter three are more broad and kind of conjectures almost, if that's the right word, where you're kind of exploring at what particular ideas or imaginations of Islamic history in Latin America and the Caribbean and the contemporary conceptualizations of those spaces may have for Muslims in those regions, like what these claims do, right? And so you start with the uh, pre-Columbian contact as one example um, to kind of set the scene. And I really like the idea Idea that you know it's the chapter is really getting us to think more not about historical authenticity or legitimacy but what these claims do right like what what does it do to the muslims that you're studying in the contemporary moment so can you help us through kind of this chapter and you know kind of how this um, leads into the other historical sections that we'll obviously get into but yeah yeah uh, thank you for asking about this chapter because this was I mean, each of the chapters was tricky in their own regard. This chapter in particular was very tricky. So uh, an early review of this book called it pseudoscience. Huh. Um, yeah, my my favorite review. I, I cut it out, framed it, uh, put it up really? in my office just to remind me of, uh, about how horrible of a scholar I am. Yeah. It was the worst review I've ever received on something. And that's because I tried something with this first chapter, mm -hmm. uh, which was not the final you know, version that, that came out in the book. And that is, I talk about, yeah, this is a question of history. 
right? right. Um, and and we've, we've learned to question history as it's been told to us. And Muslims in Latin America and the Caribbean very frequently bring this up to me, that mm -hmm. Muslims were the first to discover the Americas, and that's how they would frame it. And right. there have been incredulous questions like, and didn't you know that? Like, didn't you didn't you understand that? Right. Uh, or that's the first thing you need to know, Ken. Like, to understand our place here now, you have to understand that we were here first. And um, you know, so I I, I want to take those claims very seriously. Right. Uh, and you know, and so in the first edition of that chapter, uh, I I kind of am like Let's play a little thought experiment, yeah, as if these claims were true. Right. Um, and 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 how do we react to that? How are we reacting to that? And I. I, I was a bit too playful with that, saying like, let's let, let's go with that through line. Um, and how do you feel at the end of this chapter? And mm -hmm. why do you feel that way? And and you know, then using that as a as a as a means to say, it reveals a lot about how we think about the Americas, how we think about history, how we think about Muslims in the Americas, their place within the Americas, both historically and in the contemporary society. Uh, and that did not work. <laughs> um, it, it, it just, it fell flat and people were like, no, you're, you're saying that Muslims discover the Americas right. and you know, that this is pseudoscience. And, um, I, I heard that review. And so I changed that chapter mm. to make it very explicitly, um, you know, evident that, no, I do not agree with these claims. I don't think right. there's enough historical evidence there. And I think they're also problematic for other reasons, in particular, right. erasing indigenous people, cultures, language, etc. Right. Um, and, and so, but at the same time, this is not very far off from the hagiographies that we tell about American hemispheric history from a predominantly white Christian European perspective either. Right. Um, and so yeah. I still hope that chapter, um, you know, again, says, why, why are these claims important to Muslims? Because they're trying to place themselves very deeply within the American hemisphere in that story. And that's significant in and of itself, but though it should, should help us still question some of the stories and myths that we also should know we're telling about the history of the Americas um, and, and why different peoples are sidelined within it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I hope that chapter is now successful, um, or at least slightly successful, um, and, and deals with those claims out of respect, but then also uses them to start this whole conversation about, yeah, how do we think about the Americas? How do we think about Muslims within it? And do we see them as foreign to, sidelined in, or uh, integral as a part of the American story since the long 16th century? And, and that's, that's where I begin is they, they're a part of the story uh, from very early on uh, mm -hmm. and have, have shaped it just as long as Europeans have. Uh, and obviously Europeans played an outsized role as <clears throat> colonizing powers. Right. Muslims were there. Muslims were present, right. whether in the imagination or embodied. Uh, right. And so then that, that's that next chapter, then talking about this initial um, Spanish colonial contact and how Muslims were part of the imaginary of right. the, the Spanish colonizers, uh, or then also impacting material, physical, and or embodied aspects of the colonizing experience uh, from a European perspective, or also from an indigenous perspective, because indigenous peoples were often called Los Moros or the Moors by Spanish colonizers, uh, kind mm -hmm. of using a, a enemy uh, opponent, um, brown people type of label 
right. uh, that, that, that they transported from Europe to the Americas right. um, and, and explores that. Yeah. And I think it's it's interesting that you got the feedback that you did. And I could now, as I'm rethinking how I read the chapter, it makes sense of why you were trying to constantly kind of say, you know, we're we're talking about why what these claims do as opposed to making a claim that you are like, I don't necessarily believe in this, right? But it's just like, oh, this may not be historically what happened. Um, but the idea of you know what constitutes archives, what constitutes history, right? Like, well, you know, what what do we do with stories that are told? Um, and you get this a lot in kind of studying um, Islam in, in kind of the North America context, be Canada, South America, or um, the U.S., right, in terms of who's the first and who is, um, who got here first. And there's there's a lot of kind of colonial approaches to the ways that we tell stories. Um, so now I'm uh, also like reprocessing those t- uh, that first chapter. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. No <laughs> but I'm sorry that yeah. that happened. <laughs> it, it happens. And, and again, as, as part of a methods type of thing, I use that as a thought experiment in my class. Mm. That's how I started off my semester. Right. Basically, like students are coming in with, with all types of received histories. Right. And, you know, I wrote up on the board, as I do in the book, and I open the chapter with it, is in 1492, Columbus right. sailed the ocean, you know, leave a blank here. Uh, and every single one of the students could fill it in, right? right? It doesn't work so much now that I'm here in Germany. I, I've tried this out here in Germany, and people just right. kind of look at me blankly. But, right. uh, you know, in the United States, that is so <clears throat> firmly drilled into people. Um, and right. and that that little limerick, a lot a lot of really uh, damaging, destructive colonial history, mm-hmm. um, but then also sidelines other stories. And so, again, thought experiment in the classroom worked wonderfully, worked right. wonderfully. Transporting that into a chapter right. failed miserably. Right. So, right. Yeah. Then then I'm like every other sentence. I'm like these claims are not, you know, solidly evidence. They're not backed up, you know, no. and, and again, you know, you're, you're speak, you got to learn to speak to different audiences. Right. And that I learned right. that lesson. Uh, I don't know if it's the hard way, but mm-hmm. in a good way. I learned yeah. it very clearly. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, now, now it totally makes sense as well. Well, and then you shift from kind of the, the making like, you know, with Spain and the pre-Columbian context to also the influence of what happened with the transatlantic slave trade and the influence of um, West African enslaved peoples, right? Like this is another layer of history that really, you know, diversifies like the way we can think about um, Islamic history in Latin American and Caribbean context, which really I think is fascinating. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, folks like Sylvian Diouf and others have written a lot about the ways in which um, the history of um, enslaved peoples in the Americas and their stories, stories of Sufism, stories about how Islam and how a lot of it really doesn't um, survive across the generations, right, for various reasons. But here in this chapter, you're also talking about how there is, you know, there is influences and um, uh, legacies of it, you know, and so what are some of those legacies and what are you trying to get across in terms of also highlighting this, this other thread to the historical context yeah so uh, after moving on from kind of the the spanish colonial histories and legacies moving into this next chapter uh is really where i I relied the most on other people i I think this is one of the areas of this field if you call it that of of, you know studying islam and muslims in latin america and the caribbean this is where the most work has probably been done um as part of a a a broader explosion but a, a broader kind of movement of Black Atlantic scholarship and, mm-hmm. and looking at the transatlantic slave uh, trade in enslaved peoples. And, and, and that, I really just relied on all these wonderful works that have been done. And I, I make that pretty explicit in the beginning of the chapter saying, 
here's some key works. I'm going to throw in a few others that are, are, are a little newer. I mean, there were even other literature reviews that had already done this work. So, so here I'm really standing on the shoulders of tons of people who've done this work before me. Um, and again, just trying to put it in a synthetic, synthetic narrative format. Um, some of the things that we you know, try to, or I've tried to play with here, um, and I hope the readers kind of pick up on, um, is there's been this discussion of how for a while, um, you know, enslaved uh, black Muslim people were so often linked to rebellion and, and revolt. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's been some pushback in the scholarship on that about we shouldn't reduce them to that. Right. I agree. Um, and, and I talk about that a little bit in the chapter, but then I also say, but these revolts are significant. Right. Again, if the claims of pre-Columbian uh, pre Muslim contact are significant because of the role they still play in contemporary communities, okay. this is another thing that comes from my ethnographic work with different communities in the Americas and with Black Muslim communities in the United States and elsewhere, where they, they will cite these revolts and these rebellions mm -hmm. um, and draw on that for their own resistance and their own struggles for liberation in the contemporary context. And so, mm -hmm. while yes, it is important from a historical, um, you know, constructive and academic perspective to not reduce enslaved black Muslims uh, to rebellion and revolt uh, and how that worked within colonial orders to again, paint them as, as the, the rebellious other. Yeah. Uh, we also need to see how this becomes a source of empowerment uh, for contemporary communities. And so I heard that from Muslims that I was speaking to, and I wanted that to come to the to the fore in the book, but then also other influences, again, scholars who have done this work before me, uh, talking about music uh, and, and the, the, the role that the Black Muslims have played there, talking about other elements of popular culture, and then also talking about the ways in which Islam as a, as a distinct or formalized practice with an infrastructure may have faded uh, and, and really had little hope of surviving given the the violence of the, the transatlantic middle passage uh, and then the fact that they, they had no learning communities, they had no leadership, they had no official ability to practice their religion. Although that died out, there are some spurs and some uh, you know, hints and some reverberations that exist in other religious traditions or in broader kind of cultural um, rituals and, and practices that exist today. And, and I think one really rich area of further research is here too, is I think it's kind of the, the holy grail of this, this, this field of research is if we can find more explicit connective tissues between these uh, you know, enslaved Black Muslim communities and their um, descendants and the emergence of Black Muslim communities in the, the 19th and 20th century in the United States and elsewhere, they may not exist. I, mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people say, yeah, they, it probably died out and this is a new startup of a, of a different kind and there's mm -hmm. influences that exist there and they exist within the same ecology, but we mm -hmm. can't think of them as, as connected through this person or this lineage or whatever. Right. Um, but they might exist out there. And I think... Mm -hmm. Um, what, what a wonderful thing it would be if someone was able to dig into a new archive or find some new information um, that I don't know, other scholars don't know, that people have not been able to find yet. Mm -hmm. And that's why I wrote this chapter in particular was to say, here's the story we know so far, but right. what else is there to find here? Right. And yeah. there's so much excellent research. There's, there's various PhD candidates I know in the United States right now who are doing work in this area, right. uncovering right. new aspects of this story. And that gets me more excited than the chapter I wrote. 
uh, yeah. is to say, yeah, here's what's happened so far, but where can we take this research in the future? Because there's so many different spurs that we could go down and so different roads we could explore. Right. And I absolutely agree. I mean, I think um, even like some of the legacies of this in terms of, you know, the Nation of Islam, a more science temple. And it, it's not that it may always be um, a direct link as much as how these kind of histories have informed the the resistance or race conscious race, uh, religious movements that have emerged in the American context. I think it's really fascinating. Um, a lot of Black Sufi movements in, in the U.S. also have a similar tendency, especially if there are Sufis who have come from these contexts. And so I think like you, I'm also like awaiting folks who are doing some of this amazing work and really mapping it out because I just think it's fascinating and there's so much there to explore. Um, so I think that's wonderful as well. This chapter was fantastic. I should say like, I think each individual chapter and you probably intentionally did this or like chapters that could easily work in course syllabi, like syllab courses of, you know, various aspects. And I was taking notes of how I could incorporate this one chapter in my Islam class or something like that. So I think it's it's written, you know, both that it's part of a broader narrative, but it's standalone enough that they can be individually assigned as well. So in case our listeners are wondering how to incorporate this book, but we could talk a little bit about pedagogical practices to Towards the end. Um, the last kind of bit of historical context that you provide um, is around indentured servants and immigrants. And I really loved this chapter because there's really like, I think this is what I knew the least about. And so this, I think, like provided me um, really wonderful context that I didn't know a lot about, um, in particular in terms of connections with, um, you know, indentured servants coming from Indonesia or India, um, but I also, and the Arab Muslims as well. But I have to ask you to tell a story about Salomon the coffee <laughs> so I wonder if he's a good way to help us kind of set this chapter as well for our listeners yeah yeah so I've got this uh, wonderful I'm not saying it's wonderfully written necessarily but I mean a wonderful story because it it, it it's really stuck with me uh where I went into uh the small town of Puyuya in, in Puerto Rico which is in the mountains a beautiful setting very important to kind of a Puerto Rican national uh, sense of identity and imaginary and uh, very much linked to their understandings of what it means to be Puerto Rican. Uh, and so there's a lot of depth there. And I was with uh, the Muslim community in Aguadilla, uh, which is on the western coast of, of, of Puerto Rico. Uh, and they said, oh, you need to go visit uh, Salim and Radwan in Oyuya. You need to go there. Uh, and they gave me a number and I texted the number. Yeah. Uh, and they were like, yeah, sure. Come up on Friday. Sounds great. Yeah. Uh, and I took my car and drove up in the mountains, um, yeah. you know, swerving little roads to get up there. Beautiful scenery the whole way. And uh, I got to uh, Hoyuya and then I said, okay, where should I meet you? And they're like, oh, just come to the appliance store. And I was yeah. like, okay. <laughs> and I, I went to Salim's appliance store uh, where, you know, it's got different appliance companies uh, advertised on the front, but then there's this big a uh, plastic sign that has a cup picture of a cup of coffee um, and says, if we don't do business, we drink coffee together. Yeah. Um, and I, I found that this was a true offer uh, because yeah. I stepped in there sometime in the morning in Salim's appliance store where there were just appliances, wall to wall, floor to <laughs> ceiling, everywhere. Um, unfortunately, we didn't include images in the book, but you know, mm -hmm. I've got this one picture uh, in my collection of, of Salim with a coffee cup and then like appliances everywhere and electronics everywhere. Uh, but Salim had established himself after uh, being part of a, of a Palestinian diaspora fa family, 
Um, and, you know, they went from, from Palestine to Kuwait, and then brother came to Puerto Rico first. He followed, started selling clothes door to door, ingratiated himself and connected with the local community. He became a trusted businessman in, in the locality, uh, opened this appliance store. And the entire day that I spent with them there, there were people coming in and out to buy things, but then also to just grab a cup of coffee, this mm -hmm. coffee machine that was white at one point in time but is now stained brown uh, from, from so, so many uses. And it's got a deep, rich flavor that, that's coming out of it uh, yeah. from uh, years of making coffee. And we, I don't drink like 10 cups of coffee. And I got to know Salim, his story, got to see the, the musalla, the prayer space that they have in the, the back of an apartment and another business there in the town. I got mm -hmm. to meet a local convert, got to help unload appliances from the back of a truck and hope I wasn't <laughs> gonna put my back out in the uh, process. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, and it was just this great snapshot, I thought, mm. of a life of uh, an Arab Muslim refugee migrant who made an, a life in Puerto Rico, of all places. What does that look like? And how might we be able to see Salim's experience as a microcosm of a broader Arab Muslim experience in the Americas, if we could speak to that? Um, and, and yeah, so th this chapter is kind of split into, into thirds almost, uh, into different indentured um, servants from Indonesia and India, and then also immigrants. And I think this chapter, um, I would love to split. I, I think indentured servants from India and Indonesia deserve their own chapter, immigrants, uh, you know, and, and different movements of people deserve their own chapter. But theoretically and thematically, I wanted to talk about diaspora experience. Right. Um, and I thought that those could be linked together. And I, I still don't know if I made the right call there, uh, because whereas Salim's story works very well for the Arab Muslim immigrant experience, it, it doesn't work as well for the indentured servant experience. Um, but I, I knew the latter better. And so that's why I wanted to use the Salim story to kind of mm -hmm. hang those points on. Yeah. Uh, and I, th I think it comes near the end of the chapter where we do a lot of like the discussion of the, the background, the history, the stories uh, in general, and then and then say, now look at it within the life of Salim. Yeah, yeah, which I think every single chapter really does is that you do even even though you have the historical sections at the first half of the book, even the latter half of the chapter, the chapters that deal with the contemporary example still have like small historical sections really situating. And you do the same with like you talking about indentured servants and how like maybe even in the context of um, Indian indentured servants, for example, I remember there were these particular dynamics between Hindus and Muslims, right, and particular kind of um, um, aspects that were unfolding. And so you're right, I mean, probably this chapter itself can be a whole book, like, I think every chapter really can be right. And so I think like what you have done is really kind of captured this particular, um, you know, one particular aspect of the migration or diasporic religious um, context um, across these different communities. Um, so that kind of really just kind of, I know, it's really quick, but such up kind of the historical stuff in terms of what you're you're dealing with in terms of these regions the contemporary chapters were fantastic um, and there's no way that we're going to cover all of them but there's a few that really stuck out to me so I wondered if you could talk through it but if there's a favorite that you have we could also totally talk about it um do you have a favorite example from the contemporary sections I'm kind of curious or one that you really enjoyed writing like you have, you know, the halal example, there's, uh, you know, um, the the example of Sunni hegemony in terms of dealing with the mosque in Havana. Um, there's the great Sufi example. Anyway, so yeah, do you have a particular one that you enjoyed? <laughs> yeah, what, a, what an interesting question. Because I think as you asked that, I, I go, um, 
I've had different favorites at different times. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, and, and sometimes when I was writing them, they were, you know, less my favorite uh, mm -hmm. because it was just, you know, difficult to write or yeah. the experience or the, the research that I'd done wasn't quite coming out of the paper. I mean, we've all been there. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I think for a while, the chapter on the contest for Sunni hegemony in mm -hmm. the Caribbean was, was my favorite and probably still would be overall okay. my favorite because um, there there was a, a, a kind of a, a flash of, news reports and literature on the building of the first mosque in Cuba, in, in the center of, of um, Old Havana. And a lot of great work on that, a lot of great scholarship on the background and things like that. Um, but I had this opportunity to look at it from the competition of who was trying to build this mosque. And, and that was a really fun way fun is an interesting word, but uh, it, was, it was, I think, a, a, an interesting way, a playful way, perhaps, um, to to look at this issue, uh, rather than, wow, look at the first mosque in Havana, um, and instead look at the broader dynamics that are at play. And so we spent a lot of time in Istanbul in that chapter. I did not mm -hmm. expect that when I first started writing on this subject. Right. Um, uh, but that that's where it went, because all of a sudden it was, you know, the the architectural politics of Istanbul that were very significant to why President Erdogan wanted to build a mosque in Havana, right. he wanted to build it in the style of a particular mosque in Istanbul right. and what it symbolized, etc. Um, and so I, I think that was a really fun chapter for me to write. I think that's why I used the word fun, yeah. um, because it, it took me places I didn't expect. And a little bit of background on that. I, when I when I started my PhD, I was going to either write um, my, my my dissertation on Muslims in Cuba or Muslims in Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. um, and I was deciding between the two. And so this was kind of the beginnings of that research. Um, um, and because of the political situation, we made the practical PhD decision to focus on Puerto Rico. Right. The U.S. U.S. Cuban relations were constantly shifting back in 2014, 2015. Yeah. I started so. Um, but this was the results of that kind of preliminary research from going there getting to know people and talking to people and looking into the dynamics of the place uh, and kind of my own journey of discovery, which put into the chapter of yeah, yeah. who did build this mosque? Because uh, you know, I heard the mosque was built, but who actually funded it? And yeah. I talked to a couple of people from outside Cuba when I was still in the United States. And I was like, who built this? And, and they were like, you know, they didn't answer the question. Uh, and so I finally had to go and see a little piece of paper that was hanging in the, the entryway to mm -hmm. the, the prayer space. Uh, to finally get the answer to that question um and so that try to bring that into the book but yeah i mean uh, the other chapters were also you know the the chap chapter on latinx muslims in the united states was two years of of research 135 different conversion narratives that i read mm -hmm. or listened to or talked to people about um and so yeah i what a what a valuable thing to sit with 135 stories of people wow. changing their entire lives i i, I still am just uh, awed by the fact that I got to sit with that, you know, and talk with those yeah. people and learn those stories, and then to try and condense that into a chapter, right. um, and and to to try and do that justice. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so again, different ones have been different favorites at different times, but maybe the Cuba one would be the one that that stays with me the most. Yeah, and that I could, I mean, as I hear you talking about it, I could totally understand. And I think the way you caught the dynamic between Saudi Arabia and Turkey and kind of the global kind of um, uh, game of who gets to be the right, you know, right Sunni um, 
uh, kind of nation state and all the politics around it was also fantastic and how that's playing out in the context of you know Havana again like totally was like wow this is again really getting at what you're trying to talk about um the chapter that really kind of I mean there was a couple of chapters that blew my mind but the halal in Brazil one blew my mind partly because I did not know that Brazil was the largest importer exporter of halal meat like so this is like very much news to me and I even underlined it in the book I was like what so so like what is happening in this chapter like what is happening in Brazil what is ha happening in the halal market consumption commodification economy like what a great chapter again but yeah <laughs> yeah that, that one also was uh, was fun to write um, because it involved eating food in in Brazil as well. So yeah. when I went to Brazil, I said, I want to go in search of halal food. Right. And it, anybody who's been to Brazil will, will quickly tell you, if you've been to the big cities in particular, Sao Paulo and, uh, yeah. especially, um, you know, uh, comida árabe is like everywhere. It's, mm -hmm. it's go-to fast food, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I did not know this when I, when I went in search of this halal in Brazil kind of narrative. Um, and so what it ended up doing was eating a lot of non-halal food um, mm -hmm. in the process of, of talking to some locals and trying to find that. And that, and that led me to some of the, the connections and disconnections that this finance scape or this, this kind of business network that has made Brazil into the largest exporter of halal meat in the world. Mm -hmm. um, it, it is, I, I do believe I could be wrong, but, but the largest exporter of meat in general Mm -hmm. um, and and halal meat is is a part of that. But this right. is a, a, already a massive industry. If you look at the graphs, they're like you know several times bigger than the nearest competitor, uh, and they're expanding that market by the day. News just came out from from um, Brazil and the the economic minister a few months ago that they're they're wanting to grow this even more. So th mm -hmm. this is a really significant finance scape within global Islam, and it speaks right. to. If you look at the trading partners in the Gulf, or if you look to you know places like Malaysia and Indonesia that are part of this, Nigeria, uh, etc., um, you know, it, it can tell a lot of stories. So there's so much more that could be talked about here yeah. uh, in regards to this. Uh, but yeah, I have to thank people like Shula Marquez, uh, Kevin Funk, um, and others who kind of put me onto this originally because they had done research on halal economies in Brazil first and foremost. And for me, I, I wanted to, again, kind of thematically put it around connections and disconnections, because one of the things I talk about is, yeah, the Americas are entwined and, uh, you know, entangled with broader global Islamic landscapes. And I think the Hilal in Brazil example shows that quite explicitly. Right. Uh, but at the same time, there's this great disconnect that, that Kevin Funk talks about in his new book, Rooted Globalism, um, that, that says, yeah, Halal in Brazil, it certainly is, is connecting different uh, Muslim actors in different places, but it's not about religion, is, is his argument. Um, and I think that was a really interesting intervention that I kind of play with in the book as well to say, right. yeah, there is this connection, but there's also these disconnections we look for um, and these places where it, it's, it's between here and there, or it's, it's not quite fully localized, or it's not quite fully global either. Or, you know, and again, so we're always looking for these connections, but I also wanted to add this chapter to be able to say, yeah, but there are also these, these, these ruptures. And there are also these, these points where it doesn't quite connect. Or yeah, a lot of people in Brazil wouldn't even know this, right? right. I'd not be aware of this. Uh, but it's also always just a fun fact, the way to pull out. Yeah. I mean, every, every talk I give, uh, I, I lead with this. 
uh, as like the like the quiz at the at the beginning. Yeah. So what's the greatest you know halal producer in the world? And everyone's like, okay, it's got to be in Latin America and the Caribbean because that's what this guy is here for. Right, right. Where, you know, and, and somebody <laughs> somebody will come up with Brazil, huh. you know, but it's still always that that thing uh, where it's people are like, wow, I didn't know that, and and right. that it is so large. It's just one of those really great points to hang this on because <laughs> it it's a story hiding in plain sight. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and 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 it's just great to use as an example to then explore these deeper questions of how connected or disconnected are these places, are these economies from the the global Islamic experience in general, or from the American experience as well. Mm-hmm. And I think in terms of the story you're trying to tell, like nothing is more tangible in terms of mapping a particular flow of like yeah. the Latin American context to, you know, to many of the MENA regions. Like it's like fascinating that where are these um, halal meats from Brazil landing is going back to some yeah. part in, you know, in the MENA region or North Africa. And that is just like really fascinating to think about and really like really brings home the point you're trying to make in the book, which I thought was fantastic. Um, I have to ask you about chapter eight because of all the Sufism in that chapter. <laughs> um, so this is me imposing a little bit, but I just think, Please. you know, what, did it, what an interesting chapter in terms of so many aspects, right? Um, the narrative of the Chiapas and what's happening in terms of, you know, the revolution. Um, and so then you have these indigenous community members who are gravitating towards Islam, but partly because there's these missionaries that have per- perhaps a Sufi agenda that are coming in, Ian Dallas um, or um, Sheikh al-Sufi, like, you know, so there's this like really fascinating narrative uh, with multiple threads of kind of resistance of um, indigenous communities and like a really small contact. So I was really kind of also blown away by this uh this story partly also because you're trying to kind of indicate that this is a story about agency not really the fact that these missionaries are coming in and imposing kind of a a system or a narrative or um kind of some form of control which it can be right when you have missionary movements that have a little bit more of a um, political mobilization or clout or social capital involved they could do that but you also are kind of reframing and say well what what are these moments of agency that are coming from these um, from these communities who are choosing and to like buy into the story that is being told that has like, like a particular Sufi interpretation of Islam, I guess. But I don't know if I got that right. But again, yeah. another great chapter. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad, uh, you know, especially with your expertise and background uh, looking at Sufi communities, I'm glad this one, you know, vibed with you as well. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> not, you know, my area of expertise in particular. But yeah, that, I think that's what really drew me in as I definitely wanted to have a chapter that looked at uh, Sufi communities. One of the things I tried to do with the book, and it, it didn't make it so explicit. I mentioned it in the introduction, but I really wanted to show the variety of traditions that exist within the Americas. I mean, if, if you can find a tradition or a community or an ideology in the global Muslim world, uh, you can find it in the Americas. And I wanted to, to have everyone represented, whether they were Salafi or Sunni, Shia or Sufi or somewhere in between and beyond. I wanted to have that represented. Um, and so this chapter became the chapter to focus on. There's so much on the Muslim community in Mexico. It is such a rich context. And in, in some of my newer research, I've been able to start doing research in Mexico, which I've always wanted to do um, and, and do a lot more firsthand stuff there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Chiapas was a great example. And then the Sufi community in Mexico City was a late addition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was because looking at the analysis that others had done and, and looking at the multiple stories that have been written about the Muslim community in Chiapas, um, 
that I said, yeah, this is, this is a story about agency. Uh, this is a story about Mexicans seeking a better world mm-hmm. um, and, and, and using the resources at hand, whether that be from you know, evangelicalism or Zapatistas or right. these uh, Mervatun missionaries who came to town one day. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and then I said, well, looking at these other stories about um, you know, the, the order, the Jerahi order in, in Mexico City, Right. I suddenly saw that story in the same light. Uh, and, and so then it was, okay, let's put these in the conversation. And this is a great opportunity to, to spotlight city and rural um, and, and, and say, yeah, not so different. Because I think there's also a tendency in talking about Chiapas. It's like, oh, those, those poor rural Mexicans. And I'm using that in, in air quotes or square quotes, right? It's, yeah. That's the narrative that sometimes comes out. Right. And, and I wanted to avoid that in my work. And one of the ways to do that was to do this comparative stuff with Right. urbanized uh, kind of feminist Sufi order in, in, in Mexico City of all places and, and to then put those into conversation with each other and see how they're both trying to build towards something more than what their current context gives them. These Sufi traditions and, and practices help, but also hinder in some ways in that process. Yeah. And I mean, I also like in your concluding chapter, one of the things that you say in terms of what future research can do is more of kind of looking at Sufism and the Latin American and Caribbean context. I'm also like exclamation point, exclamation point, like, yes, we need that. Um, And so I don't know, like, did you find more? I mean, you list some of the things that you found in terms of the diversity of um, Tarikas and groups that are kind of present. But were there like other interesting stories that you had that you didn't include in the book that related to Sufism at all? Yeah, so later in the stages of this book, Mark Sedgwick, who um, is a, a European-based uh, scholar who's done a lot on like, you know, neo-traditionalists and esoteric groups and things like that. He he wrote about this landscape of Sufi communities um, in Latin America, and he published a piece on this that I cite in the concluding chapter. So this was later in the game. As part of that mapping project that I, I talked about as well, I was looking for all these Islamic centers and mosques across the, the region. I also found tons of different orders and communities, uh, Sufi communities and orders across the hemisphere. And I was like, whoa, there's a lot more going on here than I thought. I thought the Chiapas example was like not only a great example, but also one of the few I could find. That was kind of the perspective right. when, I, when I started with that. And then to find, oh, no, they're, they're all over the place right. from you know, right. Chile and Uruguay, Mexico, in the Caribbean, you know, in the United States, and also so many different other uh, types of lineages that exist there. And, right. and those lineages often be very important in Sufi studies. Um, and and in this chapter being important, you know, connecting mm-hmm. New York and Mexico City and Turkey again, and, right. and, and then like in Dallas and Scotland and South Africa and Spain and, and, and Mexico yeah. as well. But then you look at these others and my gosh, it, it just expands and gets ever more complex. I think mm-hmm. this is one of those areas where somebody could just have a field day yeah. uh, diving deeper into Sedgwick's work um, and, 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 and basically he, he sets it up. I mean, he, I talked to him, I interviewed him for, um, a newsletter that I, that I published on this, this theme. And, um, he said, yeah, I basically just did it because I, I couldn't avoid seeing it all. And so right. I published it, but basically just said, somebody run with this. Yeah. Uh, so it's just sitting there for someone to pick up and take and, mm-hmm. and write a book, uh, do a dissertation, several dissertations that are possible here. I mean, yeah. That was really exciting. And I said, yeah, there, there needs to be more done, but I'm not the one to do it. So right. 
Yeah, and I agree. And I think uh, Marta Dominguez-Diaz has an article that's also come out that came, looks at um, a particular group, I think, um, as well. And so there's some scholars working on it. But I do think, I mean, if there's any listeners out there, PhD students who are thinking about, you know, projects and stuff like that, and, you know, work in this region, I think Sufism is definitely a great, um, great project to pursue. And I think there's a lot of people who would be sure. interested in reading it, myself included, and yourself and Mark. And so, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, um, again, we are not able to get to all of the pieces and I'm also mindful of the time, but like stepping back a little bit, we've kind of given a little bit, you know, little insights in terms of some of the things that your book does in terms of focus, you know, what do you really want the, our listeners, but also, you know, readers to take away from this? And one of the things I had mentioned earlier was this idea of like globalizing global Islam. So it's like, is that one of the things that you're hoping is like the bigger, the bigger goal? And what do you mean by that? Or what are some other things that you hope um, readers will take away from what you've done or started to do? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I make it pretty explicit introduction, uh, three points that are the core of this book. Um, and that is that Islam and Muslims are not foreign to the Americas, but an integral part of its story and its development. Uh, and that's not to, to necessarily sideline others that are part of this, but as we've long understood American history, it is a multifaceted uh, multivalent thing that has been impacted by various peoples across multiple geographies. And too often Muslims are just so left out of that narrative right. and they shouldn't be. And I hope the historical uh, chapters really point to that uh, in terms of you know the last 500 years, but then the contemporary chapters underline that, underscore that while they may be numerically small, they're categorically complex. Right. They're an integral part of a lot of dynamics from economies like the Hilal uh, trade in right. Brazil, uh, to explorations of, of Mexican identification and, uh, you know, social orders mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and different questions that Latin Americanists, uh, American, you know, hemisphere scholars, Caribbean scholars are looking into. These these themes in the contemporary chapters are themes that come from Latin American and Caribbean studies. Mm -hmm. And then I wrap it into Muslim community stories. Um, and, and so I, I try to make that argument. Second argument. Uh, is that Latin America and the Caribbean are part of this global Islamic landscape, that, mm -hmm. that these places and these peoples that I talk about are representative sites and representative examples of many of the dynamics we see at work within yeah, the Ummah in general across the world. And uh, this, this line that I have in there uh, where we, we, we need to further globalize global Islam um, is, I remember I wrote that uh, I, I presented that at some conference and uh, it was one of those, you know, this is more of a comment than a question, uh, you know, responses that, that came yeah. after that, 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 that uh, oldie but a goodie uh, gem of a conference <laughs> response. Um, it came out and says, you know, hey, that's kind of offensive because there's a lot of us that have already globalized globalism mm -hmm. and, you know, that. And, and I hear that. I mean, I studied under people who, who did this pioneering work in terms of sub-Saharan African Muslim communities and mm -hmm. said, yeah, there's a lot more going on with the Islamic Muslims south of the Sahara, uh, and we should pay attention to that. And, and that that has already been, you know, a field that's 20, 30 years deep in that kind of argument. And I think that needs to happen here now. We can't pat ourselves on the back and say, yeah, we talk about global Islam. We look at Islam in terms of globalization. Well, there's a lot that's still being left out, yeah. um, not only in terms of data points, which I think this book introduces a lot of new data points into people's understanding of what Islam and Muslims around the world constitute. Um, you know, like, you know, interesting factoids that are, you can pull out at a cocktail party, but then also theoretically, 
you know, I don't think we can conceptualize global Islam without thinking about the Americas. Right. Um, because th this is this is here where perhaps, as I talked about in in my the book I'm working on now about Puerto Rican Muslims, uh, this is the the, the Ummah and movement right. uh, in, in in some ways that you know we couldn't study or we, we don't know the archives of for a couple hundred years ago, but it's happening mm -hmm. now in some of these contexts. So we have a great right. opportunity to pay attention to it uh, and to theorize global Islam in new ways. And so that's the third point is. Once we see the Americas as part of global Islam and global Islam as part of the Americas, we can think about them both in, in ways that are, are beyond me um, mm -hmm. and, and are beyond this book as well. And, and I hope this book is just a provocation to have us think in a direction. So if you're somebody who's in Islamic studies, pay attention to the Americas. If you're somebody who's in American studies, Latin American studies, Caribbean studies, et cetera, pay attention to Islam and Muslims right. uh, is kind of the, the end point. Yeah. And I think as I hear you talking and as I reflect on your book as well, I think a lot of it is also like the stance of what are we erasing when we don't pay attention, which is this like rich plurality of Islam, right? And the ways in which culture, the ways in which uh, personal piety, the ways in which geography in inform our sense of what we think Islam is. And so for me almost, you know, with a book like this, it's like what, what happens when we start with Islam in Latin American contexts or Caribbean contexts as opposed to starting about teaching Islam from the, I don't know, from Saudi Arabia or Turkey, right? And I think that's what a book like this does is say, well, you know, um, uh, what, you know, what does halal practices look like? What does um, it mean to be Muslim for um, indigenous communities, right? And so I think that that's just really for Islamic studies scholars, especially those who teach Islam, like I think that's part of our responsibility as scholars, right? And teaching religious studies is like to be really conscious of these realities in terms of not only race and culture and gender, but in also in terms of de destabilizing kind of colonial perceptions of what religions are supposed to be, right? Yeah. And I think you've kind of given us um, like a tool in which to do that and kind of in a very accessible way. Do you have any advice for maybe listeners who are potentially teaching courses that align with some of what you've done in this book? Have you used this book in teaching your own courses? Like I know you mentioned you taught a course, University of Florida, um, where you had one of these 20 wonderful students who you kind of wrote the book for, but do you have any advice for maybe using the book if you have used it yourself? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I wish I would have had this book for that class. Um, and one of the best experiences with this book was having uh, a student who was in that course uh, be one of the respondents at the book launch because oh, they are wow. now working on their own PhD in political science. And um, to have them respond to this book with now their added years of research and experience. Um, and and I, I quasi quote them in the book. They didn't want to be quoted directly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they, they were the ones who asked at some point in the book, well, what does this matter? And in the conclusion, I'm like, yeah, well, I mean, this matters for political orders and, and societal conversations that we're having right now. I think it's relevant to some stuff beyond uh, academic discussions. Um, and, and, and they say, yeah, but what does it matter? What does the knowledge matter? And, and that was just a wonderful experience to see them interact with it uh, these, these several years later. Um, but yeah, I have used it to teach as well. So I, I taught another Islam in the Americas course um, at the graduate level here in Germany. Um, I have used chapters of it in teaching a course on global Islam uh, mm -hmm. called Theorizing Global Islam. Uh, so I used a couple of chapters from here, one from the historical, one from the contemporary, uh, to help students who had no background history or knowledge of Islam and Muslim communities in Latin America and the Caribbean to then help them theorize global Islam in new ways, perhaps with this mm -hmm these chapters as examples. And and yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad you, you you picked on the fact that I, I really tried to make it so that you could pick up any chapter and use it in 
uh, a different course. Uh, I know that not every university is going to have an Is Some in the Americas course. I wish they did, uh, but I know that that's not going to happen. I, I think that could happen at universities where you've got a Center for Latin American Studies, a Center for American Studies, and a, you know, Islamic Studies department or Islamic Studies you know, chair within a department or whatever it might be. Uh, there's some great fodder for co-taught classes or new classes that you haven't taught before in here, I think. Um, and, and so definitely encourage people to do that. But then, yeah, if you're teaching a course uh, in Latin American studies, I think there's something in here for you because I, I touch on themes um, that are, are relevant to that, but with a, from a new perspective. And then also, too, if you're teaching an Islamic studies course, um, there are some perhaps novel and not so tried and true examples here where you could really extend what students imagine as possible or part of uh, Islam um, and, and perhaps also in some ways more relevant to their experience if we're teaching in the United States in particular. Right. Um, I, I really enjoyed, again, having that student respond, that former student respond to the book. But I think sometimes when I've talked about this with student groups, um, at Florida International University, or um, I, I got to do a presentation with, uh, I won't mention the company, but with like a company's um, like diversity day was, was basically what it was. They had me come and speak on this book. It's an inv a global investment company. Huh. And there were, there were like hundreds of employees on the call. Um, and I got to teach this book, which was ridiculous. And I, I, I did that. And the best part of it was all these people who are like in investments and, and working for firms all over the globe was all the people from, you know, Mexico or, you know, Brazil or Argentina or people who had, yeah, had migrant backgrounds or heritage from those places. They were like, man, I never knew this or I didn't understand that or I hadn't seen that before. Man, it's making me wonder about my name, like my last name, Matamoros right. um, or whatever, like where does that come from? And, and those are really cool experiences too. So I think in the United States, you have an opportunity to perhaps use texts like this to connect with your students in different ways mm -hmm. uh, may not have other points of connection um, from their own heritage or their own background or their own stories. And I, and I saw that come through when I presented about this book in a, an investment company, which I never imagined I would do when I wrote it. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. Yeah. I'm always kind of amazed with, I mean, I follow you on Twitter. I am amazed with kind of your um, uh, public scholarship and kind of the work that you do do in that world as well. So it's like really interesting to see um, like you existing in these multiple spheres and cultivating different spaces, which I think is wonderful. And I also just to highlight your point, you know, folks are teaching a course on like Islamophobia or Orientalism. There's like a chapter that just deals with that, um, right. you know, in Argentina, which I think is great. Or I'm thinking of teaching the Halal chapter in Brazil to with my Islam class, intro to Islam class. I think that'd be a great way to kind of talk about and think about about, um, you know, what it means to practice, you know, um, halal consumption, right? And so I think, you know, it doesn't even have to be based on um, the, the hemispheric focus. It could really be also topical and thematic as well. So I think there's lots of different ways to explore and engage with this book. Um, and I definitely encourage folks to do that. Um, I'm sorry that there was so much that we couldn't get to, but I'm so grateful that we chatted. Um, before I let you go, um, is I mean, I hear that you're working on really fantastic things, like you're joining us from Germany, which I'm so grateful for. But um, what are you doing in Germany? <laughs> are you working, what's your next project? <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I, I landed here in Germany because I, I married a wonderful German, and uh, she and I moved back here in 2019. And, and to my surprise, I kind of thought, well, you know, I have, again, I've worn different professional hats and right. I've enjoyed the ride I've had in each professional sphere. 
Yeah. Uh, and, you know, academia, I don't know if you've heard, but you know, it's not always a, a sound or practical uh, yeah. career choice. And so yeah. I kind of thought, you know, I'll move to Germany, see what happens. And yeah. I doubt, I doubt they're going to be that experience, that interested in what I've got to say. Right. Uh, and I have found just, just the opposite that the German academic environment here has been very excited about this research and has really supported it, uh, whether it be the University of Bamberg or Freie Universität in Berlin. Uh, they've provided teaching and research opportunities for me, and so I've been able to do more work on this. So um, through the Berlin Graduate School, Muslim Cultures and Societies, the most mouthful of a name for a research center <laughs> you could imagine, yeah. um, at Freie Universität Berlin, they sponsored me for two years to allow me to found a network of people working on Islam and Muslim communities in Latin America and the Caribbean. So mm -hmm. that's one of the projects I'm most excited about because mm -hmm. it's connected a network of over 300 people, mm -hmm. uh, practitioners, activists, scholars, journalists who are interested in this subject. Um, and we've already put on a couple of events. We've got a couple of publications coming out. Uh, that's been really cool. And, and that's been the most joy I've derived from this because I've just been able to sit down and meet people, talk about this type of stuff. Uh, and create a community around this this topic, and that's been really exciting. And then um, a couple other things I'm, I'm working on uh, with support um, also from the Muslim Philanthropy Initiative. So one of the things I'm looking into is uh, Latinx Muslim philanthropy and Muslim philanthropy in the Caribbean as well. We have a colloquium coming up on that topic uh, in December 2022, uh, where we're going to be talking about Muslim philanthropy in the tri-border area between Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay. Uh, talking about um, the first shelter for Muslims at the U.S.-Mexico border, where I was able to go spend a couple of weeks um, and and do some firsthand research there. Mm -hmm. uh, but then also talking about like Arab Muslim newspapers um, and um, philanthropic financing and law investments and, and things like that. So you know, some really exciting things there. But the biggest thing on my plate right now is... Uh, a book that's tentatively titled American Muslims, uh, The Everyday Lives of Puerto Rican Converts to Islam. Mm. Uh, and, and that is currently under review. So, you know, we're hoping and we're, you know, as the Germans say, pressing our thumbs instead of crossing our fingers. Um, and, and we'll see where that comes. But yeah, that's the, the biggest next thing. And, and I'm really excited about that because that's, again, uh, over 100 different stories, interviews, narratives, and ethnographic experiences beyond that I've just been hopefully stewarding well some other publications, but now to come out in, in monograph form, I'm really excited about, and uh, that'll be the next thing that, that, that comes out, hopefully, in uh, the next year. Oh, that's fantastic. Hopefully, the reviews are really good, and you don't need to print them out and frame another one on your wall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If someone could come up with something better than pseudoscientist, I would I would appreciate it. I would, I would give them a, a for creativity. I think. Yeah, okay. Well, cool. Fingers crossed for you. I'm sure it'll be fantastic. Um, you're doing so much amazing work and I'm um, really, it's been such a pleasure to chatting with you, talking about your book. Um, I wish you all the best with everything that's coming ahead for you. And I really will look up to your work as well in the future. So thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for the excellent questions for just solidly engaging with this work and, and, for, for knowing it better than me sometimes. I really, that that's so humbling for someone of your stature and your work and your experience um, to be able to, to have this conversation with, and I really appreciate it. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. And that was my conversation with Ken Chedwood about his book, The Muslims of Latin America and the Caribbean. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and thanks so much for joining us. And I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, take good care.